Well, good morning. morning. And you are already seated, so I'm not going to bother to tell you to sit down. (laughs) Thank you so much for uh, coming and worshiping with us today. Um, I'm Sean. Um, This is the pastor here, but I think you all know that. Uh, But I'm still happy to see you, and I'm still happy to worship the one true living God with you. And I'm happy to open his word and to dive in and to see what he has for us today. If you have your copy of the Word of God, whether physical copy or on your mobile device, please turn, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We will be continuing our trek through the book of Samuel. And I'll give you just a moment to find that. That's 1 Samuel chapter 13. We'll be picking up where Brother Jeff left off in verse 8. 1 Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse 8. And if you have found it and you are able, I do ask that you would please stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. One last time, that is 1 Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse 8. And the Word of God says, Then he, Saul, waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering, that Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him, that he might greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, The Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have just been so blessed is to read your word, your very word, God. Lord, and even at first blush, we see some truly troubling things. Some things that, if truth be told, we see too often in our own lives. Lord, we know this is, this is no accident, Lord. This is the leading of the Holy Spirit. This is the eternal nature of your word. 
So we ask that by your spirit, you would lead us in truth. Lord, that we may be holy as you are holy and not come away from this unchanged, but instead changed forever. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so real quick, let's do a little bit of background here to see uh, to see where we've been so far. Um, if you recall, uh, once upon a time, uh, many moons ago, we uh, were introduced to Samuel, who was a long prayed for child of a couple, um, of a God-fearing couple. Um, and upon his birth, um, he was uh, devoted to service to the Lord. Um, and he served in the temple before, before the high priests and his family, who were not doing things well. Um, but we see that in this, God raised up a leader, the final judge, um, the final judge for Israel, as he brought them, by God's grace, deliverance from the Philistines, um, and led them in worship and honor to the Lord. Um, and then we saw where the people quickly, all too quickly, turned around and said, uh, no thanks, uh, we, we want a king now. Um, and even at, after Samuel's warning, his very strong warning, um, they said, no, we, we want to be like all the other nations. They got kings. They look pretty cool. We want king, you know, so we can be pretty cool. So Samuel takes it to the Lord. The Lord tells him to go ahead and anoint them the king that he will appoint he will show him. And that's what happens. We, then we are introduced to a man by the name of Saul, um, who uh, fits that the people's definition of what a king is supposed to look like. He's tall, he's strong, he looks good in that armor, leading the charge against the Philistines, which he does on multiple occasions. Um, but he, one thing he seems to lack greatly is a true fear of the Lord. And we are um, introduced to that very strongly here in our passage today. So without further ado, let's dive right on in. Beginning in verse 8, Then he, that is Saul, waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. So, Right out of the gate, it sounds like Saul's doing exactly what he's been instructed to do. He's doing the right thing, right? He waits seven days, waiting on Samuel, because Samuel said, when you get there, wait seven days, I'll come to you, and then I will show you what to do next. Um, this is on the heels of his great victory, right? After his, uh, he did what his hands found to do, which was to beat the Philistines. So, um Saul seems to be on a roll here. So he, he comes out of the gate strong, obedient, waits seven days. But during that time, Samuel does not come to Gilgal. Not only did Samuel not come to Gilgal, but the people, the soldiers who were with Saul, begin to, my translation say, says, were scattered from him. Uh, your translation may say, began to depart um, or were dispersed from me, something to that effect. The idea here being they were leaving. Um, they waited the seven days. Um, they were tired of waiting. 
um, because they saw what was going on. They were getting nervous. They were getting anxious. They were like, we're out of here. We're done. And so Saul's getting a little worried. Saul sees this. He sees the seven days have passed. He sees, I'm sorry. He sees that his army is scattering from before him. And he gets nervous. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. Now, at first, at first glance, we think maybe he just wants to get ready for when Samuel does show up, because that would be nice, right? So Samuel gets there, everything's all set up, and Saul says, you just got to go. It's ready for you. Just, just present. Oh, but then we have the rest of verse 9, and it says, and he offered the burnt offering. This is the crucial mistake that costs Saul everything. Because he disobeyed the prophet of the Lord, the last judge of Israel, so who has some leadership experience, and somebody who has served in both priestly and prophetic offices instructs him, you wait for seven days until I get there and I will show you what to do next. And then Saul takes it instead upon himself to offer up the burnt offering. He, see, he thinks, perhaps he truly thinks, he is doing the right thing. Perhaps, perhaps that is ingrained in his mind. He, he thinks, I am doing what I should. He thinks he's pressed for time. He thinks that there's that people are leaving. Samuel's maybe not even coming at all. I've got to do something, so he does something. And maybe he thinks it's the right thing. How easy it is to fool ourselves. That disobeying the word of God is the right thing. I don't know about you, but I can look back on my week. My most recent week, and I can say that is an instance where I convinced myself that disobeying God was the right thing to do. And how do I know that? Because every time I sin, I, can, I have convinced myself on some level this is the right thing to do. So this is what Saul does. Despite the clear exhortations in Scripture, despite the clear instructions given to him by Samuel from the Lord himself, Saul breaks the word of God and it costs him everything. And then verse 10, now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came. Now isn't that always the way? As soon as I'm done doing what I know I'm not supposed to do and I've somehow convinced myself it's the right thing to do, at that moment, someone, something arises to remind me, oh by the way, you really screwed up. 
So Samuel comes, and Saul went out to meet him, that he might greet him. Your translation might say bless him or welcome him. The idea here being Saul is under the is um, excited in some way to see Samuel. Goes out to greeting, to embrace him, to say welcome to the camp. Don't worry, we've got it all under control. We're ready to go out. Then Samuel said, "What have you done?" When those four words are uttered, it is hardly ever followed by something positive. Nobody walks in to a pleasant surprise thinking, what have you done? No, those words are pretty much reserved for terrible situations. And these four words should should make us think of a couple of previous episodes in the Bible. They should make us, they should draw our attention back to the garden. After Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and God confronts them. These four words draw our attention back to Cain after the slaying of his brother. And God confronts him. These words should make us think about Moses as he comes down from the mountain and he sees the people of God worshiping and dancing around a golden calf. What have you done? These words should make us think about our own lives. When we have finished following through with that action where we have convinced ourselves, even though it's against the word of God, it's the right thing to do, and all of a sudden it's done, we sober up and we say, what have you done? These four words... Seemingly so inconsequential, so ordinary, so everyday, are there to snap God's people back to the truth of His Word. What have you done? What is Saul's response to this? Let's find out. Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. Pause. Saul's response to the words, what have you done? Are not brokenhearted repentance. Just as Adam's response was not brokenhearted repentance. Just as Cain's response was not brokenhearted repentance. Just as Aaron's response was not brokenhearted repentance. What was it instead? The woman whom you gave me told me to eat and I ate. Am I my brother's keeper? Is it my responsibility to look after him? 
you were gone for so long that people started getting antsy. So they gave me all their gold. I threw it in the fire and out popped this golden cap. When I saw that the people, the soldiers, the men of Israel, God's people, when I saw that they would leave that. Samuel, when I saw that you did not come in the time that you promised. And when I saw that the Philistines were gathering together to come down and attack us. The response is excuses. It's finger pointing. It's passing the blame. And I by no means am pointing a finger at you in this first, in this aspect. I'm pointing the finger at me. But God, you promised. You said. You commanded me. To be fruitful and multiply. God, you commanded me to go out and to preach the gospel. God, you told me to do this, to do that. I assume that meant, Lord, by any means necessary. At least that's what I told myself. But that is never the case. God's will done my way is not God's will. Brother and sister, God's will for your life done your way to get it done on your timetable is not God's will. It does not matter how many of those wonderful excuses we can come up with or of those circumstances we can point a finger to, or those people we can pass the blame off to one another, God's will, done in any other way, is not God's will. Because God does not simply command the end. He also commands the means by which to accomplish those ends. In the economy of God's kingdom, the ends do not justify the means. Instead, he has provided both the means and the end. And when we, when we fail to realize that, when we take our eyes off of Christ, off of God's way, and we instead try to accomplish, even with the best of intentions, God's will in any other way, we have not just fallen short. We have not just missed the mark. We have openly rebuilt. Because that is not God's will. So, Saul's response is to pass the blame onto his circumstance. Now this makes me think of Peter. Right? Peter, who, in the middle of that storm on the Sea of Galilee, had the faith to get out of the boat and walk on the water to Jesus. 
And as long as his eyes were fixed on Christ, he was good. He was making it. He was doing something nobody else had done. And then he took his eyes off of Jesus and he looked at his circumstances. And he saw the waves crashing around him and he saw the storm raging all about him. And then he began to sink. This is what's happening here. Saul was not looking at God. He was not focused on worshiping and obeying God. He instead was looking at his circumstances. And his circumstances told him to defy God and act. Do anything. Don't do anything except stay put and obey. Do whatever you can think of. So he did. And because he trusted his circumstances more than his God, he disobeyed. Saul said, continued, Then I said, The Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Our circumstances will often compel us to do many things. Our circumstances will often compel us to make a decision right now. Don't wait, don't think, don't pray, just do now. Our circumstances will often compel us to disobey. Our circumstances will often drive us, motivate us to go another way, a way other than God's way. But to give in to that, to yield to that, and to obey our circumstances above Christ is to allow our circumstances to be God in our lives. Saul here was not worshiping the God of his fathers. He was not worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was not worshiping the God of Samuel. He was worshiping the God of his circumstances. He was worshiping his circumstances as though they were God and obeying them rather than obeying Christ. And it caused him to disobey the work of the one true God. Because this is what our circumstances will do. The enemy will try to use our circumstances just like he did with Job to instead of worshiping God and serving God and obeying God to curse God and die. If you want a, a true example of what it looks like to take the Lord's name in vain. This is it. It's not saying, oh my God, when things don't go your way, 
although it is also that. But it's not just that. It's not, it's not even saying a stronger version of that when you're just really upset, although it includes that also. As John Piper once said, that's kindergarten stuff when it talks about taking the Lord's name in vain. Taking the Lord's name in vain is when God has given you his name to carry with you. Like he did when he raised Saul up to be king of Israel, struggles with God. And he acts like this. It is when we, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are called by his name, Christian, like Christ, little Christ, And we leave these four walls. And instead of taking with us the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, we take with us the same attitude the world has, the same behavior the world has. And we look no different than they do. We have taken God's name vain as Saul has done here. Saul even says, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. It wasn't God who compelled you. And if you had spent time in the word of God, Saul, you would have known that. But the same can be said for us, can it not? I was in this time-sensitive situation, and I had to act, so I, I did. I felt compelled. That's great. Unless your compulsion was to do the opposite of God's word. Saul here was seeking to establish, to not just be satisfied, taking for himself, the authority given to him as king. But now he has stepped into the role of priest. And too often, we are not satisfied with the authority God has given us in our lives, whether that is in our families, whether that is in our works, whether that is in our very own local church. We are not satisfied with the authority God has given us in whatever capacity that may be, and we seek to take for ourselves additional authority. Authority he has not given to us. That's when we cross the line. That's when we, that is what it looks like to presume on the grace of God. That grace is not reserved for you. It's reserved for someone else. If it's for you, God will let you know it's for you. Because he will give it to you. It's not a test to take it. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. That was the implication of the previous thing he said. But what have you done? It doesn't matter, it's foolish. I see what you've done. It was foolish. You have done foolishly. 
You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Samuel's response to Saul is to let him know that what he has done is foolishness. And there is plenty written in the Bible about the state of the fool. If you haven't read that, spoiler alert, it's not positive. It's very negative. What the Bible has to say about the fool is that his end is destruction. And so Samuel says, you have done foolishly. How? By not keeping the command of God. My friends, it does not matter how smart what you're doing looks like to the outside world. If it goes against God's law, it is foolishness. Saul's circumstances, from a purely practical standpoint, he did what he had to do to get the troops moving before he lost any more of them and to take the fight to the Philistines. From a practical viewpoint, it looks like he did something smart, something wise, something that might have rallied the troops together. But he broke God's law. Therefore, regardless of how it looks to the world, it was stupid and it was simple. And he knew that. Samuel goes on, For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. What does that mean? Well, it, I, I like to liken this to the situation in the garden. Where, obviously, obedience would have meant abiding in the garden forever. <coughs> obedience for Saul would have meant a dynasty being established in his family. Under his name. God knew that wasn't going to happen. But that was the consequences of obedience. The consequence of obedience was forever in the garden, a dynasty in the family of Saul. But because of disobedience, Samuel says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. It was disobedience that lost us the garden. It was disobedience that lost Saul a dynasty. We don't know, and oftentimes, what we lose in our disobedience. Samuel continues, The Lord has instead sought for himself a man after his own heart. Now the... The most traditional way, and I think the most obvious way to read this, is the way it's commonly read. Is that the Lord has instead sought and chosen for himself a man who loves what God loves. And a man who hates what God hates. That is true. That is accurate. That is included. 
But I think there's something else going on here. When it talks about the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, it's also contrasting this with who Saul was, which was a man after the people's heart. So what Samuel is doing here, what God is doing here through Samuel, is saying, you were raised up because the people wanted a king. And for the worst possible reasons. God has now sought out and chosen for himself a man who will be king for God's reasons. Because God has chosen him. God has sought for himself the king he always intended for them to have. The king, the man, after his own heart, the one according to his choosing. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander, your translation may say chief or leader, over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So, God was always going to give Israel a king. Israel got impatient and asked for a king according to their standards. Not God's biblical standards. Nothing written in the Pentateuch. Just somebody who's tall, broad shoulders, good looking. So we can be cool like all the other nations around us who have kings. So because they got impatient, God raised up the king they thought they wanted to show them how it would end. Because an impatient people begot an impatient king who was tired of waiting on things God's way, on God's time, so instead did things himself according to his own timetable. So that's the king they got. The king they wanted, the king they got. And now this kingdom, this dynasty, will give way to the kingdom God always intended for Israel to have. With a man after God's own heart, who will be the commander over his people. And now, because God raised up a king according to the people's own heart. He gets to watch his own kingdom crumble. He gets to watch his own dynasty fall to make way for the kingdom of God. My friend, we have spent our entire lives before Christ building up our own kingdom. We've spent our entire lives worried about our reputations, our legacies, our desires, our selfishness, our greed, how big our home is, how expensive our car is, how good-looking our spouse is. As if that's all that matters. Get it, get it, get it, take it, take it. Taking, 
accruing for myself all the stuff that the world says I need to be happy trying to be remembered in a way that the world would be proud of. But God has appointed for himself a man after his own heart. The Son of God who came to earth, who took on human flesh to look like us, to be like us, to be one of us. And it is this man, the true king, whom he has raised up to do away with all of our own individual selfish dynasties. Because believe it or not, like it or not, at the end, there is only one king. Yeah. And all of earth, all of creation will be subjected under him. And that king, his kingdom, knows no end. Amen. You can look through the pages of history, you can flip through, through the pages of time, and you can see kingdoms that have risen and fallen and are now just a footnote but God's kingdom ruled by God's man that kingdom endures that kingdom continues and brother and sister when circumstances compel you to do things your way to continue trying to build up your own kingdom? Take your eyes off of your circumstances. Your circumstances will do nothing but discourage you, depress you, and compel you to break God's law, to disobey God's command. Look instead at Christ. Look to the one whom God has raised up as king. Focus instead on him. And you will be included in his kingdom. And when God says wait, just wait. And when God says go, that's when you go. Not a second before, and not a moment after. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Samuel was done. Samuel saw what Saul had accomplished. And by accomplished, I mean disintegrated. He had delivered the word of God to him. And he departed. Probably, this is a little bit of speculation, but probably to pray and ask God 
to show him where the next king was, where the true king of Israel was. And Saul numbered the people with him, about 600 men. So Saul's situation was pretty dire. Started with 3,000 or 30,000, depending on which manuscript is correct. He started out with a lot. And by the time this was all said and done, it was down to 600. That was Saul's situation. So yes, the practical side, the pragmatic side says, yeah, you should do something. But the word of God said, wait. So when the word of God says, wait, you wait. It ain't easy. Waiting is hard. Probably the one thing Tom Petty got right, but waiting is the hardest part. <laughs> but it's true. Waiting is hard. God's people waiting on God's time is difficult. But the kind of waiting God has for his people is not idle, thumb-twiddling, nothing. God gives his people assignments to do. Saul was king. He had people who were deserting him and an army that was amassing against him. He had other things to do, waiting on Samuel to get there. And he chose instead to usurp Samuel's authority and take it for himself. So when God says wait, brother and sister, I encourage you to wait. But wait actively, doing what God has commanded you to do. Rather than looking at our circumstances, becoming discouraged and despondent and scared, and then being compelled to disobey. The easiest way to do this? Look to Christ. Look to Christ. For every look you take at your circumstances, take a thousand looks to Christ. So when the storm is raging around you and the waves are piling up and it seems like it's overwhelming, yeah, it's going to be. It's designed to make you feel overwhelmed. Why? So you don't rely on yourself. So you instead go immediately to the foot of the throne of glory. where he sits and where he is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we his children can ask him to Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have just read your word, Lord, and we have seen not just where a servant in the past has failed, Lord, but where we as your children fail regularly. So, Lord, we pray that our hearts are broken. We pray that our knees are bent in worship. We pray that our arms are uplifted in praise, Lord. And that with the publican, we can beat our breast and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner.
Lord, your word has not been given to us to make temporary changes in our lives and then to quit when it gets hard, but your word and your spirit have been given to us together to make lasting and eternal change to your people that we may be holy as you are holy and that we may therefore reflect your holiness more perfectly, more accurately to a dark and dying world. We ask all this in Jesus' name, the one on whom we wish to keep our eyes, that we may seek obedience above action. Amen.